Thanks so much, Mark. Hi, folks. Good. It is still morning, isn't it? Just about. It's just about. It is so wonderful to see you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for your passion for this subject. That means that you're in this place. And, uh, and it's so wonderful to see uh, some very familiar faces as well. Um, I, you know, so I should introduce myself before I do anything. Uh, as you've heard, my name's Andy Flanagan. And as you can tell from the accent, uh, I'm from Luton. And uh, well, I've, I have uh, been there the last three and a half years, haven't been there for a chunk of time before, and uh, about a decade in London uh, in between. Uh, but it is wonderful to be back, you know, in the real, the real homeland. And uh, it is just so, so fantastic that you've, you've come here today. Before we do much, I would love to get a sense of why you're here. I, I could say a thousand million things, but I want what I share today to be useful uh, to our you guys are to be useful to the context in which we find ourselves uh, in these islands and in the United Kingdom at the minute, uh, which is a fairly challenging context to say the least on so many levels. Um, and I'd I'd love to just do a, a wee quick skirt round and hear where you're coming from, so that so that basically what I said does not either go over your head or under your feet. <laughs> you might be sitting there going, "Oh yes, we know this, we know this. No need to tell us this." Um, I, I really want today to be useful and fruitful. Our prayer is that this is uh, just like a, a catalyzing moment, not just oh, it was an interesting to think about politics for an hour, and we can tick that box. Uh, we've just finished a tour around 17 different towns and cities, uh, around, around uh, England and Wales. And it's been, it's been incredible to see God's people stepping up in localities all the way across, those two nations especially, stepping up, serving in their localities. It's been incredible. It's been an absolute privilege to see it. And in every town, in every place we've gone, we've done those events, those tour events, under the auspices of the local Churches Together entities. And so these churches together are now forming the, the spine, the vertebra, f- to create and catalyze ongoing groups of Christians coming together across different parties, people who aren't involved in parties, people who are independent, coming together to pray together, to seek his kingdom in the political sphere, in their part of the world. So it's been really inspiring to see that happen and see those groups catalyzed. And I guess our prayer is that uh, having been at New Wine Ireland there a few weeks ago as well and, and being here today, that we can catalyze something sustainable and ongoing for this part of the world that would bring people together just to offer something to bring people together and to get people praying, get people energized. Um, so there are, there are many, many different things we could talk about where we're going to talk about the call to be involved, the incredible call to be involved in the public square um, and, and to, to really home in on that. I wanted us to get right back to the start of the Bible. If you've got your Bibles, can we go to Genesis chapter 1? And then I'm going to hear from you guys as to where you're coming from. This is quite awkward with a crutch. (laughs) Oh, explain why I have it. Yes, sorry. Uh, Somebody shoved me over while playing touch rugby a few weeks ago. And my anterior cruciate is torn, uh, as well as other bits. So, uh, yes, it's very embarrassing to confess it was touch rugby. Uh, that's, the, that's the worst part about it. I, text, I texted my friend Tim to say what had happened, and he said, I told you that kiss chase would get you in trouble. Um, yeah, it's fairly embarrassing. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. 
And then in Genesis chapter 2, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. We could go all the way through. These these verses I'm reading out are taken from a a chapter in the book called Route 66 because it goes all the way through all 66 books of Scripture and showing how God has a passion for good governance and good ordering of society all the way through all 66 books of the Bible. There are little verses that we often pick and choose from Paul's letters when we think about politics, but all through Scripture, God makes it clear that he has a passion for good governance and the right ordering of society. He has that passion all the way through. We're just, just to reassure you, we're not going to go through all 66 books in the next hour. We're just going to touch base in a couple of places. And here in Genesis chapter 1 is this incredible thing that we call the creation mandate or the cultural mandate. Adam and Eve are very clearly called into public leadership, into leadership in the public realm. And these are verses that we return to often, don't we? We've heard these verses many times. And especially at the moment, as, as our world faces the challenge of climate change, we often return to these sort of verses to think about our stewardship over the non-human creation, over what is going on to the wider world of our climate and the ecosystems, thinking of our call to stewardship there. And that is good that we think about those verses, and it's good that we think about our role and our place in creation. But what we often do when we look at these verses is we forget the context in which they come. We forget the context in which these verses are placed. These verses happen before the fall. This call into public leadership happens before sin enters the world. It is before the fall, which is a crucially important fact, which we often gloss over and miss. It would appear that even perfection needs managed. Any church leader will tell you that. I'm joking. Even perfection needs managed. It's an incredible thought that Adam and Eve were being called into leadership even when creation was perfect. Because you see, there's a very tempting line of theology which would lead us, seduce us into thinking that politics is just a necessary evil to constrain evil. That because we live in a fallen world, that's why we need a police force. That's why we need speed limits. That's why we need people in authority to put things right because we are fallen. And yes, of course, that is part of the role. But that is not our theological starting point. Our theological starting point is that God has called his people to lead in his created order. And it starts to make sense of what we'll be doing for eternity as well. You're thinking this morning about the eternity that we will experience that Gilbert Gilbert shared about. That future perfection where it is promised through scripture that we will be ruling and reigning with him, kings and priests, in that future perfection. So right back before the fall, we're called into public leadership. And actually that's what we're going to be doing forever. Ruling and reigning with him. Apparently still, even then, perfection will need managed. Ruling and reigning with him forever. And we are stuck in the in-between bit, which you could almost see as an apprenticeship for that future perfection, that call to lead in the public square, to image his rule and reign as his ambassadors. What a call. What an incredible call. But it's really important that we see it as a divine vocation. Because sadly, with the needs in the world and the huge needs around us, it's very tempting as the church to just respond to the needs that we see around us in a utilitarian, functional kind of way. The things are broken, so we need to help fix them. 
politics is just a necessary evil to help fix things that are broken. And yes, there is a lot that needs fixed. And there, there is a lot that needs broken. There is a lot that is broken. But our response, our call to be involved, is not just sorting out a broken world. It is a call to step into what he has set out for us. It's a divine vocation. And you might think this is theological semantics, but believe me, after two decades working with Christians involved in politics, this is not semantics. Because if you get involved just wanting to sort some things out, you do not last very long. Because the toxicity of social media will take you down. Because the, the, the opposition of some parts of the press will take you down. Because the opposition of some people in your party will take you down. You will hit a wall and the stuff that you've been trying to do will not work. And your pragmatic reason to get involved hits a very, very serious wall and you give up. I've seen so many people give up over the years. Or to just hide their light under a bushel. Or just keep their head under the parapet. Because it's too difficult. Because most of the time, those people have got involved believing that it's just a practical, sensible thing and a response to the way the world is. This is not just that. This is a divine vocation. This is a holy calling. And Christians in politics, working across all the different political parties, we are there to train folks to have a biblical spine so that when they step forward, they know that this is a holy calling and that sometimes things will look successful. And we will get those things sorted. But there are some times that things will look like failure because we will lose some battles, because we will be taken down in some debates. But we are there to give him glory and bring him glory and image his rule and reign. We are not just there to functionally sort things out. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's an incredible privilege. It has been wonderful to see the church in recent years respond to the needs around it. But I have a serious fear that as the church that we could spend the next 50 years as the UK's paramedic, treating the victims of a sick system, but failing to speak truth and justice and righteousness to the system itself. We are running food banks. We are mentoring at-risk teenagers. We are counseling those who are in debt. Some societies and some communities are being held together by the incredible work of believers who are reaching out. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. But I do fear that we can be so busy. Number one, we can be so busy doing social action that we do not seek social justice. And we can so be so busy doing social action that we forget to tell people about Jesus. Two huge dangers. The church could spend the next 50 years being the paramedic of the UK. Martin Luther King put it like this. He said, we're really good as the church at being the good Samaritan on life's roadside. We are hardwired for compassion. When we see a need, we want to meet it. Our hearts go out to people and we want to help. We love the buzz of actually seeing somebody in need and helping them giving somebody food, giving somebody money. We love seeing people transformed in our faces right in front of us. There's actually something that feels good about that. There's a buzz that happens when we do that. He said, but also what we're not so good at as the church, we're good at being the good Samaritan, but we're not so good at going back to the Jericho Road to work out how to stop more people getting mugged. We're not so good at that. You know, and in 2019, that might look like more CCTV cameras, more police on the beat, more street lighting. But you can bet your life 
that those sort of discussions will happen around really dull committee room tables and council meetings, which will not be half as exciting as seeing somebody in the flesh and seeing that transformation in your face. Not even half as exciting. So you can see where the temptation is to stay involved in just the stuff that's right in front of you and not step back to look at the macro, to look at the reasons why people are in the trouble that they're in. You know, as Desmond Tutu put it, we need to not just be pulling the bodies out of the stream. We need to not just be pulling the bodies out of the stream. We need to be going back upstream to see who's pushing them in. And we sit in the context of a global system that is producing victims. And we need to be speaking truth and justice and righteousness to the system, not just treating the victims. That's the divine call to public leadership. That's the Genesis 1 call to see justice and righteousness expressed in our legislation. To see culture changed through good legislation. And you think, well, is that really possible? Is that a pipe dream? Well, I think about a couple of things just from the last 20 years. Seatbelts. You know, nobody used to wear seatbelts. And when people suggested a law for seatbelts, people said, ah, no, 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 hang on. You can't do that. You can't do that. That's infringing on my privacy. That's infringing on my, on my, on my decision making. You can't do that. You can't impose your morality on me. But that's what legislation is designed to do. We get a little bit soft as Christians sometimes saying, people say, oh yeah, you're imposing your morality on people. That's what legislation is designed to do. That's the job of a lawmaker. Everybody is imposing their morality on everybody else. That's what you're doing. You're just discussing it while you're doing it. That's what a speed limit does. It stops people for the common good going faster than they should. That's what a seatbelt does. It stops people hurting themselves and hurting other people. And people said you can't do that. But that legislation has changed culture. And we could also talk about other examples where bad legislation has led to bad changes in culture. But don't tell me that legislation doesn't change culture. It does. We could talk about smoking in workplaces. Similar. Huge change in culture, but it started with legislation. And our cry and our prayer is that God's people will be involved in the formation of good legislation. Not just being involved, as we so often do in the church, be involved in commentary and critique. Sitting back. You know, my bath, sadly, has never got cleaner by me standing outside it saying, Be clean! It's only got cleaner when I've stepped inside it and scrubbed. And we often believe that we can stay somehow holy and pure by staying separate from certain parts of society and saying, oh yeah, politics, dirty game, let's not go there. But when Christians do that, the antiseptic effect of the gospel decreases in that sphere, decreases in that area. And actually a lot of folks would look back as to why we're in the position we're in now and look back to the 60s and 70s and say, when well, Christians sort of spotted some things in culture that they didn't really like and sort of stepped back from the town halls and stepped back from the public square and we created our own subculture, we created our own festivals, we created our own big entities because that was much more fun. And 20, 30 years later from that, stepping back from academia and stepping back from the public square, we have the present worldview problems that we have now in the public square. That's what happens when people, when Christians step back out of places that we're called to step into. And nobody says it's going to be easy. Nobody says it's going to be easy, but we kid ourselves if we think we can sit back separate. You know, if you came here in a car this week, you probably put petrol in that car or diesel. 
And if you put petrol in that car, you are actively supporting some fairly shocking Middle Eastern states that oppress Christians and oppress women. If you put food into your, uh, you know, into your house or wherever you're staying or your caravan or your tent and you went to a supermarket, you are actively supporting some, at times, fairly questionable practices with both local and global producers. We are part of a fallen system. We can't pretend to escape it. I could talk about your mortgage. I could talk about your broadband. I could talk about the crystals inside your mobile phones where there's slave labor creating those in Africa. We are part of a fallen system. To sort of sit there and say, oh, well, should we be involved? It's ridiculous to say that. We are involved. People often say to me, but Andy, I would get involved, but I think I'd be compromised. I think I'd be polluted by it. And I try to ever so politely say, oh, can I, can I let you in on a secret? You already are polluted. You already are compromised. Just by existing in this world, you are. So the question is not, you know, should we get involved? It's how are we going to get involved? Because we already are involved. And I want to show you a, a little video clip now that tries to expand a little bit more on this and give a little bit more biblical context, this time from the New Testament, from that famous passage in Colossians chapter 1. So that's not easy, especially when we come to the idea of party politics. It's hard enough when I'm standing in Derby or Leicester or Shepton Mallet in England, suggesting that people get involved in political parties. It goes to a whole other level of complication when you're standing up in Coleraine or you're standing up in Sligo suggesting that that happens because I know exactly how hard that is and I know, I know exactly how I did not do that. That is not the only method for being involved. We are involved prayerfully. We're involved as independents sometimes. We're involved in a missional way. Politics as a mission field within various places and areas, it's, in, it's incredibly difficult. And that is one of the things I'd love us to grapple with now, that at this moment in this country, in this set of countries, how are we strategically influential? And where might God call each of us to? I, for, age, for ages and ages and ages, didn't actually get stuck in and join a party. I'm not saying that's the only way you can be influential. But a big part of the role of Christians in politics is to support the Christians who are involved in various political parties. Um, under our umbrella as Christians in politics, we have Christians on the left, folks who are involved in the Labour Party, the Lib Dem Christian Forum, Lib Dem Christian, uh, obviously folks involved in the Lib Dems, and the Conservative Christian Fellowship. And then really good relationships with folks in SNP, Ply, DUP, various other parties as well. Um, but that's a challenging decision, you know. For me, it was a hugely challenging decision um, because you're thinking, well, I can go along with like 60 or 70% of what that party stands for, but really not the last 30%, not loving that at all. And uh, for me, I had to come to a pragmatic point of realizing that actually I was never, just in the same way that you're never going to find a perfect church, <laughs> or maybe somebody has. Who's found the perfect church? No. Who's found the perfect partner? No, yeah, you, you, you know, you end up settling, don't you? No, that's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> I jest. But the reality is, we, we, we want to be able to agree with everything, but that's not actually how we operate in all the other areas of our lives. We don't agree with everything, with everybody that we work with in our jobs. We, we certainly probably don't agree with everything that our partners, our husbands and wives believe. And we probably don't agree with everything that our church believes either. Yet we find common cause and we work together. There is, however, one uh, political party, and I agree with 100% of their policies. Is this being recorded? No? Oh, it is? Okay. 
There is one political party, and I agree with 100% of their policies, but it's called the Andy Flanagan Party. And it has only one member. Sadly, it's me. But you see, that is the, that's the philosophical thick end of the wedge that we get to, painting ourselves to a corner until there's nobody else there and there's nobody else left to go with because we just want to be with people who believe what we believe. And it is more awkward and more hassle to be hanging out with people who don't believe what we believe. And we get ourselves into such a corner and we're missing out on the evangelistic missional opportunity of rubbing shoulders and working with and finding common ground with people who we will not agree with on everything. Now, believe me, I know standing in Northern Ireland how difficult a thing that is to say. But the evangelistic missional adventure of working with people who we will not necessarily agree with on everything is... It's incredible. Just uh, a couple of months ago, the privilege of being around where, when an MP, uh, I won't tell you which party or tell you their name, but you know, was, uh, became a Christian, was led to Christ. And that started because somebody started a fairly uncomfortable relationship with them, even though they were doing some stuff that they fundamentally disagreed with. They got alongside them and said, I want to support you. I want to pray for you. I want to be here if you ever want to have coffee. And that person experienced something of God in that person and a few weeks later was praying a prayer of confession in their office in the House of Parliament. And that's why our involvement is so important because this isn't just about making laws better. This isn't just about seeing society transformed. This is about people getting to know Jesus. This is about the transformation of people, of the whole person. And we pray and we hope in the midst of that that those people will then know more of his rule and reign, and will therefore want to image more of his rule and reign in the way that they articulate legislation. That's why the relational approach, that's why the getting stuck in approach is so important. Not just because it's strategically and it makes sense, and that actually we should be doing a job of persuasion rather than trying to bang people over the head with stuff. It's so easy for us to try and import the strategies of the United States into the United Kingdom, which is like, if, we, if there's enough of us, then we can force people to think this way. That's a very, you know, very uh, shoddy summary, <laughs> which isn't really fair. But actually, in terms of numbers, it's not a strategic way to go here. We have a job of persuasion to do. There's a job of persuasion to do that can only be done relationally, that will never be done by us. Well, if we just get the biggest voice possible, if we just make ourselves as loud as possible, if we just articulate ourselves as cleverly as possible on social media. We have learned that it's really important to disagree well. And so we do work really hard as Christians in politics to hold each other accountable in terms of what we do on social media, in terms of how people speak, in terms of trying to speak more politely, in terms of trying to listen more. But our experience has shown that that only gets you so far, that the only way you can really disagree well is through good relationship. The best Disagreements I have with uh, members of parliament are those with the ones who I play five-a-side football with. Well, who I used to play five-a-side football with. Because those folks know me as a normal human being. And I can have those conversations. And it is incredible to see what can come up and what trust there is. A thing that would never happen on social media, but it happens in real relationship. So I wonder who today God might be nudging you in the direction of. What new relationship might he be nudging you in the direction of? that might, at the start, be uncomfortable? Is there a local councillor? Is there a politician? Is there somebody from a party that you really don't get on with? Is there, is there somebody that God would put in your heart? Who's the first person? Who's the first journey? My, my wife always talks about her journey into acting and how it felt like God was just planting people, like just slightly out into deeper water 
into deeper water, that there'd be the next person and then the next person and the next person. Just who's the next relationship? This doesn't have to be a big, scary thing. Just who's the next relationship that God might be calling you to outside your comfort zone to be an influence for him? So with that thought, and I want to do what I said I would do at the start and, uh, and hear a little bit from yourselves as to why you're in this room Maybe reflecting, maybe throwing rotten tomatoes of heresy back at me from what I've said already. What, where does this land for you? Why are you here? And what experience have you had already in this realm of where faith and politics interact? What are you already up to? And can we keep that to like sentences rather than paragraphs? Is that all right? Um, we'll have a little bit more time for questions at the end, but this is just to get a sense of where, where you guys are at or even how you're responding to what you've just heard already. Can, uh, can, can we just take a survey of maybe like seven or eight hands and we'll hear from some people? Wonderful. Sir, is the best way to do this with the microphone, Mark? Yep. Uh, we just have one, do we? Great. Great. Well, actually, actually do you want to, if, if people come up, would that, would that be all right? Okay, we'll repeat the question. Great. Sir. Okay. Okay. Well, so the question is what's happening at Westminster in terms of Christians coming together and meeting like a Christian union, as you described it. So, yeah, it's, it's a privilege to be involved in the, in the weekly Bible studies and prayer gatherings. And then monthly we have a worship gathering. We're of the privilege of, of leading worship for that. It's, it's incredible to see uh, Christians from right across the political spectrum come together, pray together. In fact, some of the, the recent cross-party working that you've heard about that has been happening in Parliament has been based on the foundations of some of those relationships between Christians of different parties. In fact, sometimes elder statesmen Christians of one party mentoring uh, Christians of other, of other political parties. There are, there's some beautiful stuff going on. You're not going to read about that in the media because it's not tragic or scandalous. You're not going to hear about that. Um, uh, but there, there's some incredible relationship building going on. There's, there's frustrating things going on as well um, to me in terms of trying to encourage people to be bolder uh, in their faith and bolder in what they're saying. I'm not going to try and paint a rosy picture, but, but there's an incredible amount of, of folks getting involved. You know, there are large, large numbers of people who are involved, and especially in the, the, I guess, the red, the, the yellow, and the blue, the three you know, long-standing Christian agencies within those parties. They've you know, probably got between them probably, I would say, about 70 MPs who are signed up as members. Uh, so whether or not at every decision and at every moment, those folks are making what I would call kingdom before tribe decisions. I can't say that's always true, but there are certainly that many people who are wanting to or hoping to, and we're there to try and put a bit of steel in their spine. Um, but does that help to answer it? So the question about the abortion, same-sex marriage legislation, just from a few weeks ago, going through, why, why were so, many, so few people turning up to vote on that? Uh, one, one reason is uh, that quite a few of them actually weren't there that day, uh, because that, that stuff all happened pretty fast. So, you know, not that that's an excuse in any shape or form. Uh, and number two, there, I mean, there were quite a few people that did, that did step up um, and, did, and did vote in that. There are also some Christians who are like genuine, genuine believers who, in terms of their desire to vote on, on Northern Irish legislation just felt like it was right to abstain, not vote against, because they said they wanted, the, they, they wanted to have the principle of this is not our business, this is a devolved issue, and so we're actually we're going to almost like protest by, by abstaining on that one, so that's another reason why some of the numbers didn't look so big there. There's also some folks who, um, for whom, uh, who, who folks who have like a, a certain worldview uh, that combines with their faith that actually, that, you know, that's not the way they wanted to vote. It's not the way they wanted to vote, not the way they felt called to vote in that particular situation. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough situation at the minute. It's a tough situation for a lot of those folks at the minute. And I, I had a phone call with one 
uh, one Labour Party member just the day after the vote who just received a, like a toxic storm of social media abuse because of because of voting against it. And um, and yeah, it's our job to try and support folks and and give them ways of articulating what they believe. And because a lot of the we, we kind of tend to think that because people have got into public office that they've somehow gone through all this training. And, and you know, people are just normal people who who mostly follow their noses into this. And so a lot of the kind of the worldview teaching and a lot of the training and a lot of the incredible input that you get somewhere like New Horizon, that that mostly hasn't happened. So I think it, for us, it's in, it's underlining the importance of why we're trying to do what we do there. Um, but thank you for that question. Hey, Willie. So Willie's saying, frustrated, feel like we don't have a voice, don't know where to go. Um, and yeah, I think that, that is, you know, for all my peers. Um, I mean, I live in Luton now, but I still talk regularly to lots of people from Northern Ireland and I'm over here regularly. And so I've, it's not like... It's not like I haven't been hearing that constantly, or not like I wasn't feeling that even before I left. Um, so I, I'm not standing here with any easy answers, but I just know that God's people are part of the answer. I know that God's people are part of the reconciliation process, and I think that uh, you know it's been amazing. You know, God's people have led you know the the Protestant Catholic reconciliation process in in Northern Ireland, and and you're starting to see. In England and Wales, you're starting to see how God's people are attempting to lead the reconciliation process in, in and around Brexit. You know that my huge fear on on the on the Brexit thing is that you're starting to see a, what was a, what was already a cultural divide becoming a cultural chasm, uh, especially in, in mainland Britain. Uh, you're seeing two groups of people, two cultures, a bit like sliding towards America, where you've got like almost two separate cultures existing within within the overarching culture. Um, that we're sliding towards that, where one group watches totally different TV, goes to different events, reads different newspapers. And so that even the sh- there's just not even a shared vocabulary, but actually the church is one of the few groups of people who are stepping across that divide. You know, who are, you know, you've got people, uh, so many, and I know what's happening in, in Northern Ireland as well. You're, you're seeing people who are stepping across, who are intentionally going to live in council estates where their parents would not be happy that they are living to go and learn and be part of a totally different culture that's on the other side of the Brexit divide in England. You've got the church stepping out, bravely doing that. You've got people who are doing an incredible job of reconciliation in their own area, in their own church congregations, who might be you know, split 50-50, 60-40, 70-30. As we went around the country on the tour, we went to a lot of what you might call remain areas and a lot of leave areas. And, and you, these people are very sincere and very passionate. And sometimes people are just sitting right beside somebody who has voted the opposite direction, and sometimes within families. And, and you see that call, that call that we, that we remember, that, that centrality of the cross in our faith, because that cross makes possible the reconciliation of us to God, us to the rest of creation, and us to our fellow humans. That, that, that job of reconciliation never has seemed more pertinent. And so I think the one thing we can do is be those people of reconciliation, continue to be those people of reconciliation that step across and build relationships with those who are not like us. And, and that minute, at the minute, that might not find political expression in the form of a party or in the form of a campaign. At the moment, that might not find political expression. But I believe if God's people in a grassroots movement are stepping across the divides, both religious and cultural, in Northern Ireland, I believe that will have inevitable fruit in the years to come. Those relationships that are formed, that job. So, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I don't have a cleverer answer than that. But, that, but it's that job of stepping across the divide to forge those relationships that mean that maybe 20, 30 years down the line there will be some sort of political expression or campaign whereby there is, a, there is more of a sense of union. There is more of a sense of people asking, well, why are we here? What is our common purpose on this island or in this part of the island? What is, what is our shared purpose? What are we coming together for? 
I do, I do believe that's possible. I do believe that's possible. We've seen, you know, we've seen it happen in other parts of the world, and I, I genuinely believe it's possible here. But it's, it's the people who understand sacrifice, who understand the cross, and understand that there will be cost in that journey. You will take flack from your own people, and there will be cost in that journey, and there will be cost, because for years you will just get slagged off as pointless and naive. But knowing that there will be a cost, but knowing that actually our final, the final calculation, the final economy, as Gilbert said this morning, is not about the material and what's here. It's about a, it's about a higher call. Um, and, and demonstrating that future perfection, demonstrating that reconciliation that we will enjoy, demonstrating that future perfection in the now is a good place to start, I would say. Very good. This gentleman saying just, we're called to be salt and light. We're called to step out of our comfort zones, that we can do what we can right in front of us. Thank you, sir. Anyway, sir. Ah, did you hear that? What is the route into politics? Well, there are, there are many, many different routes into politics is the reality. Um, and you see that actually in scripture. There are many different routes, inverted commas, into politics. Sometimes people are, you know, you know the training that Daniel went through. Sometimes there are just supernatural moments. Um, there, are, there are times when somebody just actually feels like a call to public leadership. But actually, I, I would say a, a route into politics, if you're considering it or anybody else is considering it, is to, first of all, pray. First of all, pray, and, and actually, number one, I have the privilege of, of sitting in Westminster and anybody, most ambitious, passionate Christians from around the country who are feeling a call to politics, I end up usually getting an email sent to me forwarded from somebody else. And so I have coffee with these people in Westminster, and they're passionate and they're energized and they're ambitious and they're young and they're going like, I really feel God's calling me into politics. And straight away, I will say, well, well who's your clan? Who are your clan? Who, who are the four or five people? who are going to hold you accountable, who are going to walk this journey with you, who are going to prayerfully, practically, and maybe even financially support you on this journey because this journey is going to be hard. And you've got to have those four or five people around you right from the start that you're starting to pray and starting to discern if this is what's right for you in your life. Who, who is your clan? Who could you start walking this journey with? Because there are beautiful examples of people who have done that and their clan is still with them 20, 30 years later. But sadly, sometimes when we step forward, especially if we're the kind of ambitious, want to make a change, fairly gifted type head boy, head girl type person, quite often, any time in any room, you're reckoning that you're the best person to get a job done rather than delegate it to anybody else. So sometimes those people aren't the best team builders. Some people, sometimes those people aren't the best people at putting support networks together because it's usually quicker to just do it yourself. But what you find is that those people get so far in politics, but then... They're trying to stand for a local council and they need somebody to knock lots of doors for them and they need somebody to make lots of phone calls for them and they need somebody to do some fundraising for them and then they start looking for help. (laughs) But by then it's too late because then people realize that you just want them for what they can do for you rather than giving them a broader ownership of the journey. And we've had some gorgeous examples of people bringing people on the journey with them. And they've come along and they've campaigned. This wonderful girl called Susie Stride who stood in Harlow at the last general election and uh, she said to me constantly, look, Andy, what? but this could all go wrong. I've moved over to this new part of the world. I've planted myself in all these relationships. I've, I've really busted my guts for two years, and I might lose. So what's the point of all this? And I said, well, Susie, that would be true if it was just all about you. But what happened is that there was a girl, another girl called Catherine, who came campaigning with her, who got involved, who helped her out who she got involved, who was knocking doors, who has now just blitzed the east end of London in her part of the world and has been elected there and is about to become mayor. She, I mean, just, just incredible 
just incredible stuff has happened through somebody being discipled along the way. All of our engagement is never just about us. It's about who comes along on the, on the journey as well. And so I, I would say, try and think holistically about not just yourself, but about like the whole journey of who else might come on a journey with you. And pray and pray and pray some more. And get, get read up. Um, I'd, I'd unashamedly say, read the book. <laughs> see, see if God speaks to you through it. Um, we, we literally, this lady, um, I, we were doing one of these tour events in Doncaster a few months ago. And this wonderful, wonderful 70-year-old lady called Andrea Robinson came up to me. And she said, Andy, Andy, I've got to tell you. She just grabbed me and said, I've got to tell you. She said, I read your book. I read your book a couple of years ago. So I went and joined my local Labour Party. And a week later, they made me the vice chair. And, and a month later, and a month later, they, they, they made me, they asked me if I wanted to stand for council. So I thought, okay, yeah, why not? And I stood for council and I got elected. And I've been a councillor for the last 18 months. And you hear this lady, Andrea, talk about the impact, so humbly talk about the impact she's made in her local area as a local councillor, wiring the church into being involved and meeting a lot of the needs, really, really shining for God, unashamedly sharing her faith in the council chamber in Doncaster. Just incredible. It's just incredible. So don't believe that there's a sort of a glass ceiling for believers. It's, I actually believe it's actually the, the absolute opposite. Because number one, we, we so undervalue. We're so down on ourselves as the church sometimes, aren't we? We're so down on ourselves. We so undervalue what we learn being part of the church. You know, we, we learn, we are regularly part of a community. We learn some public speaking skills. We learn some communication skills. We learn some leadership skills. We hopefully learn some conflict resolution skills. We've got an incredible head start in terms of a lot of stuff that actually prepares you really well for being involved in public life. Number one, we have an incredible training just by being part of a church community that many other people don't have. Number two, because of the incredible amount of work that the church is doing in the community that we talked about earlier, we're actually really well placed a lot of the time to be representing our communities because at the coalface we see where the major needs are because quite often our church is involved in things to help serve and to help, help sort out problems. And then number three, I still believe in the person of the Holy Spirit. People shine. Genuinely people shine. I have the privilege of getting emails from people saying, Andy, it's, oh, it's incredible. I just, I, just, I just showed up and straight away they made me the, the chair. Straight away they made me the treasurer. I said, well, why was that? He said, somebody told me there was just something about me. I said, well, that's, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. You get emails from folks who are Muslims or not believers saying, I don't know, I just wanted to campaign for them because there was just something about them. People shine. We undervalue what we, the, the, the incredible heritage that we have being believers and being part of his body. We undervalue it. People shine. You know, I often say to people, if you, if you, if you go to a local political branch meeting, maybe some of you have done this. If you go to a local political branch meeting, if you turn up on time, if you do what you say you'll do before the next meeting, if you bring some biscuits, if you even bring even a shred of optimism and creativity, you are straight away in the top 5% of local political operatives. Honestly, honestly, I'm not joking. People, people shine. This is absolutely possible. There is, there is no glass ceiling. You look at Marvin Reese, who was part of our training program and who was part of a, a group of Christians getting together in Bristol to pray. They formed a, a, like a Christians in politics group in Bristol to pray into the situation in Bristol. And some of you may know his story. He was part of our training with Christians in politics. And having lost the first time, then three years ago, he was elected as mayor of Bristol. An incredible story of a guy who came from a fairly tough background in Bristol who is now just doing incredible work for the kingdom there. This glass ceiling that we imagine is honestly not, not, not there. Um, but that's not to say it's not a difficult journey. That was a very long answer to a very short question. I'm sorry, you got me a bit passionate there. Apologies. Excellent, sir.
Yes. Somebody asking about Tim Farron, bring us up to date on a situation. Well, I, I just actually at New Wine in England, we did a seminar together last week. Um, it was like random, there were like 300 people outside. Um, it was a seminar on Brexit, so you know, there were quite a few people coming. Uh, Tim's, Tim's doing really well, he's in great form. We're, doing, we're actually doing a lot of events with him, um, and where he's sharing really honestly what he felt he did right and what he felt he did wrong over the course of the last few years. And, and he would say himself, uh, he, would just, he often butts in when I'm talking about having a clan. And he would say, do you know what? I, I got away from my clan for a while. Um, but I, I, the, the, what people forget about the Tim situation is that sadly sometimes as Christians we just read the tabloid headlines and we think, all right, oh, Tim Farron, that shows you you just can't, you know, we use it as an excuse to not get involved. The reality is Tim is still involved. He is still a Liberal Democrat MP. He is still, you know, being a witness there in the, in the role that he's doing. And, and so, you know, it's, it's very, very easy. It's very, very, very easy to get knocked back by stuff that, that, seems, that seems negative, that seems challenging. But Tim is still, is still serving. And, and the actual folks who know him, all his colleagues in Parliament, he's just operating with the respect that he's always had because people know him and respect him as a human being. It's the difference between knowing somebody in reality and knowing them through social media. And there's a huge difference. His book's coming out in September, actually. We've just done a, uh, a little... Um, a little bit of publicity for that, so you can, you can grab that then. But, you know, it's that difference. I'll often talk to church leaders and they say, uh, you know, you know, but politicians, they're all in the maker. It's a dirty game. It's all, you know, they're all in it for themselves. It's all so tribal. And then I'll say, yeah, but do you know your own MP? And I say, oh, yeah, she's brilliant. She does a lot of great work for the community. And, and they can't see the, you know, the paradox between the person that you actually know and the 649 that you only see through the very, very... Uh, tragedy and scandal infested lens of the media you know we've got to be aware of that we've got to be aware that that's why the real relationships thing is so important anyway sorry sir you had a question i i so is is society becoming more hostile to christian values um i think i think a few things about that i think number one we need to be very very careful before we paint ourselves as victims because that puts us in a very interesting place in our communication uh, as a northern irish protestant um, I, I know the tone that can come out of a victim siege mentality all too well. Um, and we end up uh, not speaking in love. We end up not building bridges because we're a little bit scared and we're a little bit behind a fence. Um, and so I'm, I'm very slow to do a critique that, that actually will encourage people to, to not be engaged and not be involved. Um, but having said that, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say, I would say in the, in the media and in a social media scape, there is certainly what you describe, there is a toxicity out there. There is a toxicity out there, but actually in Parliament and with actual MPs, MPs, far better than the media, know where the juice is flowing in the country. They know where the projects, they know where the, where the, where the initiatives that are holding the country together, they know where people are serving, they know where the juice is flowing, and they know that better than anyone, actually. You talk to MPs, and they have huge respect for what the church is up to. They have huge respect, and, and therefore, people, they are still listening to when, we, you know, it's this, it's this thing of, like, we, we, we need to be so careful. This is why I talked about it at the start, you know, the Jericho Road stuff. You know, it's, 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 it's easy for us to be just engaged in, in our pastoral role as the church, but ignoring the prophetic role of the church. And the pastoral role usually makes you popular, because you're helpful and because everybody loves people helping people, but the prophetic role may not necessarily make you popular. And we have to be prepared to be both exercising our pastoral role and our prophetic role and, and, and be prepared to take, because Jesus never said that this was going to be easy, you know? So, I mean, I, I, 
on one level, in terms of comparing where we're at to you know our brothers and sisters in Syria, our brothers and sisters in Iraq, our brothers and sisters in North Korea, you know, I think I think we just I think just we need to be a little bit careful in our language around around a sort of a victim mentality. Um, uh, I don't think it, I don't think it helps us while while being clear and being consistent in our in our articulation and thinking about worldview and thinking about identity and thinking about all these things. We're not going to go soft in those things. But I think I, I'm constantly reminded of. Um, Jesus saying, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, he said, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And so when Jesus said, I am the truth, he was saying something fairly profound. He was saying that, that the truth is found in a person, not just an objectively correct set of facts, which is a hugely important distinction. You know, truth is found in a person, not an objectively correct set of facts. And so my, my thought extending from that is like, could it even be possible that we can articulate objectively correct fact, but if we articulate it in a way that Jesus would not, in a way that is loveless, in a way that is unrelational, that if we articulate what we believe to be objectively correct fact, but do it in a way that he did not, because truth is found in a person, not a set of facts, then maybe those objectively correct facts even cease to be true. Because truth is found in a person. And it's a person that we're trying to introduce people to. So that is not to go soft on our thinking around worldview and identity at all, but it's to be really serious in thinking about how we do what we do. And most of the time, it's genuinely, as I said earlier, it's not just about being nicer and more polite and finding different ways to see things. It's about relationship. There are so many good examples of people who are being on diametrically opposite sides of debates you, know, you think about, uh, I don't know how many of you read the, the story of the, of the gent who's the CEO of Chick-fil-A in the States, uh, who famously don't open on Sundays, and famously has a sort of Christian family business, and a, and a guy who's involved in a lot of, uh, a prominent LGBT campaigner uh, across campuses in the States, who are like absolutely going at one another. And then and the CEO just sort of extended a hand of friendship and said, hey, come, come watch a football game with me. Read their story. Read the story of reconciliation. Read the story of enhanced understanding because a relationship was formed. And read the story of what, how that's played out and how both of them now speak publicly about each other and how both of them now speak publicly about the issues. It's an incredible thing to see. Read that. I haven't got time to go into it now, but, but do read that. Sorry, long answer again. A good question. Any other? Judy. Hello. No. Thank you. Very much for that question, Julie, because that segues beautifully into what we were wanting to share anyway. Um, we're really keen, as I said earlier, that this isn't just uh, like a one-off experience, but actually we do try to catalyze something and bring some people together. We're actually encouraging folks um, that uh, to, uh, if people really do want to chat about this stuff, where's the best place to have lunch afterwards? Is it Bob and Bert's? Bob and Bert's, we will be, John and myself will be at Bob and Bert's over lunchtime to sort of continue this discussion if anybody else wants to chat about stuff. Um, but, but really importantly, in this kind of uh, you know, specific world of GDPR friendliness, we want to honor your inboxes, but you've all got one of these on your seats. And it would be great uh, to keep in touch. And it would be great, especially bearing in mind what Julie said. Um, there's a box there that says, Sip all Local Groups. Um, so off the back of what happened at New Wine Ireland a couple of weeks ago and and, and some folks who have already been involved, who have already expressed an interest of, of being involved with Christians and politics uh, in Northern Ireland. Uh, John, can I welcome John? John Kilday, uh, who many of you might know anyway. John's, oh, John's shaking his head. Okay, that's right. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, but uh, but John, John is um, 
for the last little while been uh, rabble-rousing a little bit on social media and has actually organized you know, the event today, uh, sort of posited the idea of doing this. So this is very much just the start of a journey. There's no, there's no claim to anything clever or special going on. It's just to throw out the idea of, you know, would this be useful? Would it be useful if a crowd of us were praying together and working together and, and just seeing and, and discerning together what might be possible and encouraging one another in that journey? Um, because we will need some serious encouragement on that journey. This, this is, you know, this is ground zero, really. Truth be told. Um, so, I think if people would love to be part of that conversation, we'll be in Bob and Bert's afterwards. But, but really importantly, I'm sure a lot of you have other things where you need to get to, or families you need to get to. Please make sure you tick uh, the local groups box on that on that form because that will allow us uh, legally <laughs> to to get back in touch and continue this conversation. There's also other stuff on there you can see if you'd like to volunteer. We're a very small entity. We shouldn't pretend to be anything bigger than we are. It's just one and a half staff. Um, so if anybody feels like volunteering with us or feels like giving us money uh, or, or feels like being involved with our councillors, supporting our local councillors, there's whole, over 200 uh, local councillors who are Christians who are part of a prayer network. If you're somebody who feels your calling is like to intercession, to support and, as you said, support those who are already involved, then please tick that box. Uh, if, you're, if you're passionate about doing stuff with students, then uh, please tick that box. But that'll be a way of continuing the conversation at least a little bit from today. Um, does that answer the question a little bit, Julie? Any, anything else that, that brings up? Anything else from anybody? Sure. Oh, yeah. How much is the book? The book's a tenner. Book's a tenner. So just, um, just, just leave a tenner on the table if you want to keep hold of it. And there's, there's more of them up here if you don't have one sitting around uh, anywhere, anywhere in your seat. And we've got a box here where you can put, the, uh, where you can put, those, uh, put those flyers into. How are we doing for time? Oh, right. Very good. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm easy. I'm, I'm keen to, is there any more questions? Is there any more? Any more? Sir? Just want to finish with a prayer as well, if that's all right. Brilliant. So the, the question is, what, what can we pray for? Um, all, all manner of things, the answer. I mean, the answer is, like, you know, all manner of things. I think um, if, if, if you put your email down in that, you'll get a regular sort of prayer news update, uh, which will give a whole pile more detail than I, than I could do just in the time we have now. Um, but w- one thing I think I would encourage us to pray about, and this is why we're going to pray this particular prayer that, that's going to be on the screen, is so often um, when we think about politics, we think about the soap opera of Westminster uh, you know, or the soap opera of Stormont. You know, that's what we think about. And we're trying to encourage people to think of, when they think politics, think local. Think, who can I be blessing? Who can I be getting to know? How can I be getting involved locally? Because sometimes politics just becomes a bit of a middle-class soap opera, doesn't it? It's just something to commentate on and something that's distant. And so, so this prayer we're going to pray is actually very intentionally not about that. It's, it's praying for new people. It's praying for God to call new people, new Esthers and Josephs and Daniels into the political realm. And maybe people like yourself, maybe people like yourself. It's, it's calling people who will have a spine to get involved. And so I, I would encourage us to, to not just be focused on what's going on up there, but focused on what is, what is rising up, what's rising up from the roots, what's coming up through. And, uh, and, uh, and, and have we time to do that, Mark? Is that all right? Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll show you the, the, the video, com- the, 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 um, the PowerPoint comes at the end of this last video, if I can find it. How much do you know about Obadiah? If you're anything like me, not very much. That's because he worked behind the scenes. You could say he was the sound guy to Elijah's worship leader. King Ahab has been leading Israel astray, dabbling with other gods, and Elijah is told to challenge him. 
but Elijah doesn't just rant about this dysfunctional political leadership from the desert, screaming into the ether on social media and drumming up signatures for his Down With Baal petition. Instead, he seeks a connection with an actual human being. Obadiah managed Ahab's palace and affairs, and it couldn't have been easy for this God-fearing civil servant to be present at the heart of a regime that was doing such damage to God's honour. But he stayed. He was faithful. Then, at the right moment, he meets Elijah and is perfectly placed to broker a very unlikely meeting. The distant is brought close. So the rap battle to end all rap battles takes place on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal suffer total humiliation and an impossible bonfire that even Bear Grylls couldn't have managed leaves a lasting impact on the consciousness of the people of Israel. But it wouldn't have happened without the event management skills of Obadiah. It's as important to be holding the clipboard as it is to be holding the microphone. Elijah constantly confronted King Ahab from outside the court. We need brave people like him, but less of us are working on the inside like Obadiah. We need more brave people like him. Let's face it, it's much more exciting to see altars burst into flames than to be forwarding emails around government departments. Elijah gets to be the hero of Sunday school stories. Obadiah, mm, not so much. We can refine our message until it's perfect, then pump it out with every piece of technology we can find. But if we don't connect with any real people who are willing to listen, it may not bear the fruit that it could. The difference between noise and influence is relationship. If the very nature of God is a set of relationships, could it be true that the kingdom of God never moves faster than the speed of relationships? We live in a noisy world. So much information, but not much wisdom. How do we filter it? How do we work out which words to believe? We believe what's said by the people we know and trust. So wouldn't it be better if people were hearing our message from people that they know and trust? Making noise helps us feel better. But it may not be so great for the rest of the world. Noise makes you move away from something. Relationship draws you closer to someone. Do we just want to feel like we've done our duty? Or do we want to have real influence? If so, we need to do the hard yards of relationship building. It may not be fast and it may not be pretty, but we will learn and be transformed in the process. And it may just lead to moments when impossible and beautiful things cause everyone to stop and stare and say, The Lord, He is God. Let's pray these words together. Gods of all government, send workers into the harvest field of political life. Call your people, not simply those who pay you lip service, but those who hear your voice and know your name. Those who will not serve two masters, those who will choose kingdom over tribe, those who are not ashamed of the gospel, those who will speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Those who will seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. Those who will seek to reconcile more than separate. Those who will seek to cooperate more than compete. Those who do not despise the day of small beginnings. Those who pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those who will choose your glory over self-promotion. 
those who will choose truth over expediency, those whose citizenship is in heaven and whose primary allegiance is to another king, those who know your grace for their feelings. So call out an army that will march on its knees in humility to fight not just with the weapons of this world, but the invisible ammunition of your kingdom. Amen.